Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 5. Psalm 5, how we pray to a righteous God. I'll read the entire psalm. I'll begin reading out verse 1. To the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. They have rebelled against you. Let all those who rejoice put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we are thankful that you are a king and our God, and we're thankful that you hear our cries, you hear our words, and we're thankful, oh God, you even hear our sighing. Thank you, oh God, that you know what is best for us, and we pray that when we come before you with our prayers, with our petitions, that we would be thoughtful in our prayer, that we'd be thoughtful by praying your thoughts back to you, by considering what you said in your word, and praying those promises back to you uh, when trouble triggers our prayer. And so we pray, oh God, even tonight, as we come and consider how to pray, we pray, oh God, you'd give us illumination once again from on high to better understand how we ought to approach you, the God of heaven and earth. And we're thankful that we can approach you as the one true God, the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Thank you, oh God, that you are perfection itself and that we are people who change a lot and come to the one who changes not. So we pray, oh God, that you'd help us to be strong in you, help us to find joy in you, and help us to trust in your perfect righteousness, O God. So we ask, O God, you be with us tonight by your spirit. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I'm all for men who like to pray without having to read something off a list. I'm all for extemporaneous prayer. One thing I am not for, and one thing we ought not to be for, is a thoughtless prayer. Sometimes I think our prayers, whether public or private, myself included, can begin to ramble without really a thought as to what we are actually saying. And when it becomes a mindless ramble, perhaps it's just best to stop and then think about the words we ought to pray to the God of heaven and earth, especially as we pray God's words back to him. I think this is a lesson that Psalm 5 teaches us, that we ought to arrange our prayers We ought to know the God to whom we pray to. And perhaps once again in Psalm 5, there's another time of injustice, although it's not specified. There's a time of difficulty, a time of sorrow, a time of struggle. Perhaps it's the similar situation with Absalom, that is David's son, who sought to take the throne from his father. David had to flee. That could be in view. 
Perhaps it's an earlier view when David was away uh, from the tabernacle as he fled Saul in his earlier life. That could be in view here. But in any case, he still is going through a difficult, unjust time. And as he goes to that difficult, unjust time, he arranges his prayers according to the character of God. And thankfully, dear brethren, the Psalms, even though they are a book of praise, they really are about a book of praise for God's people in real life struggles. The psalmist David goes through real problems that we, the people of God, can also pray as well as we pray to our God in a time of need. And once again, Psalm number five is a lament psalm. It's found in book one of the Psalter. And book one of the Psalter is all about the king's confidence in the Lord. But there are questions about that confidence. There are struggles of faith that even King David, the man after God's own heart, certainly has as he goes through life. So he trusts in his Lord, but yet there is still perplexity that he has to deal with. And perhaps the problem that we could glean and could draw out from the words of this psalm is the problem of destroying words, the problem of unjust reputation destroying words. We see language like how you don't take pleasure uh, uh, in the words of the wicked. You don't take pleasure in false speech. You don't take pleasure. Uh, he talks about the, there's no faithfulness in their mouth. In their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. So perhaps speech is the main sin involved here. People who speak ill against the Lord and against his anointed. But again, there is that real struggle. God's people are still real people with real problems and real sighs and groanings in this present evil age. And thankfully, brethren, when we have those real sighs and groanings, there is a God that we can call upon who not only hears our words, but hears our sighs. And this is what the psalmist is teaching us, how we ought to arrange our prayers according to the righteous character of God. So we'll look at this idea of arranging our our prayers according to that righteous character under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see an arranged prayer, verses 1 through 6. And secondly, we'll see a righteous prayer, verses 7 through 12. So an arranged prayer, verses 1 through 6, then a righteous prayer, verses 7 through 12. So let's first look at an arranged prayer in verses 1 through 6. And notice how the psalmist arranges his prayer in the morning. And notice he comes before the Lord with his petitions and brings his words to his God. We've seen this already in Psalms 3 and 4, and we see it here again. When the psalmist is going through a trial, as David says, trouble triggers prayer. And thankfully, we have a God we can go to in those times. Even when someone brings unjust accusations or reputation-destroying words, we can come to our God who will vindicate his people. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King, and my God. And this language certainly highlights the urgency of the situation, the difficulty of the trial. And thankfully, we can bring our problems and our rationale before the Lord, and he hears us. But thankfully, he doesn't just hear our words. He does hear our groanings. And that's verse 1. So he says, give ear to my words. But then he says, consider my meditation. This word is only found twice in the Old Testament, here in Psalm 39, 3. The idea probably carries the, the idea of sighs, groanings, murmurings, musings, perhaps is that inaudible murmuring during a time of grief. 
Perhaps it's hard to illustrate, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. The grief one has when they cannot say anything, but they hope and long for to get out of whatever mess they are in. And that's the image that we see here. That's the plight. That's the situation for David. It shows the extent of his sadness, and it shows the extent of our sadness when you hear that cry of grief. And thankfully, our God doesn't just hear our words, but he also hears our sighs as well. And he is our king and our God. And that's what he says in verse 2. My king and my God. Even the Davidic king understands uh, that there is a king greater than him. Even David understands where he gets his kingship from. He understands that God is truly so sovereign over all things. He understands that God has given him his kingship that we saw in Psalm 2. He understands he's sovereign over all. He also understands that God is near my king, and my God. He understands the nearness. He understands the personalness of this one who is over all things. This one God who is king hears his sighs and his words. He's a near God with his people. Give ear to the voice of my cry, my king and my God, for to you I will pray. Then also he is the king to whom he can bring and arrange his prayers. Verse 3. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct or arrange it to you, and I will look up. Notice the timing of his prayer. It is in the morning. Now, typically a morning is a sign of God's new mercies, and it could be that David highlights how he prays in the morning, and then he waits for in the day for expectation for that prayer to be fulfilled. But as he wakes up in the morning, he's going to go to his God first. As he wakes up in the morning, he's going to set his day all right. But this isn't just for personal purposes, although that certainly is in view. It's also connected with the worship of Old Covenant Israel. The language of arranging is connected with the daily sacrifice. That is, the priest got up. You know what he did in the morning? He arranged the sacrifices. And so when David comes and prays to his God in the morning, as he arranges his prayers and sets them out before the Lord Most High, He's also doing it in line with the worship of Old Covenant Israel. He understands that the way in which he can approach unto his God is because of the sacrifice that comes. The atonement that he has because of uh, what his God would do in the coming of David's greater son. But he knows that his standing with God is not based on him. It's based on something else. And yet he arranges his prayer with his Lord and with the worship of his God. So he comes in the morning, he arranges his prayers, he arranges it before his God, similar to what Hezekiah does. Maybe it's not the word arranging. You know, when Sennacherib basically has taken the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, pretty much except Jerusalem, and then the Rabshakeh and Sennacherib are mocking the God of heaven and earth. And what does Hezekiah do? He grabs that little letter and he takes it to the house of the Lord and he points to it. He says, God, look what these heathens are saying. Look what these wretches are saying. Look what they're doing. He arranges it before his God. Now, brethren, it's good for us to arrange our prayers before our God as well, to set them in order. It's still urgent, but it is still arranged. We must set our prayers in order before our God to be thoughtful in them as we approach unto him in the morning. So he arranges it to his God. He arranges it in the morning. But also notice in verses four through six, he arranges his prayer according to God's character. 
He sets it about in the morning. It's thoughtful, but he also arranges it according to who God is. And notice in verse four, we see the God who hates sin. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The hate, God's hatred of sin is predicated on his perfect righteousness. God does not delight in sin. He cannot delight in sin, for he is perfection itself. He is goodness itself. He is righteousness itself. And he must, according to his perfect nature, righteously punish sin and hate sin. God does not dwell with evil. Yes, in this, in this world, God still gives good gifts to all. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. But if one is not in Christ, they are called what? Children of wrath, according to Ephesians chapter 2. God, it's an unfavorable relationship with God because of Adam's breaking of that covenant of works and the guilt and corruption then passed on as well. And so... He arranges arranges then this, he understands God hates wickedness and God hates sins. And so then then also notice in verses five and six, and this is going to be a real difficulty for our modern period. Notice God hates sinners. It's also in Psalm 711 as well. In Psalm 711, he says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Remember that saying, God hates to sin, but not the sinner? Well, Psalm 5 and Psalm 7 kind of just challenge us with that, don't they? And we see that the boastful shall not stand in your sight. He can't stand the sight. Sorry. Also, he says in verse 5, you hate all workers of iniquity. Notice who he hates. All workers of iniquity, not iniquity itself. Although, yes, he does hate that, but all the workers of iniquity you hate all of it you destroy those who speak falsehood the lord abhors he can't look at it the bloodthirsty and deceitful man he cannot bear to look at all of these the haughty the 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 workers of iniquity the bloodthirsty man the liars the liars goes with psalm 4 2 remember david says and he speaks to those shameful men how long oh you sons of men will you turn my glory to shame how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Well, God hates falsehood. And David can go to the righteous character of God in his plight. And God cannot but hate sin according to his perfect righteousness. David says, what a holy, praiseworthy hatred. You do not pray to a bland blob. God has a certain character because David knows that character knows what Yahweh loves and what he hates. He has a real hope that he will come to his rescue. Thankfully, we have a God who hates sin. And thankfully, he gives us salvation by having someone else punished in our stead. But God is a God who hates sin according to his perfect righteousness. Now, verses 1 through 6 is meant to teach us the importance of a thoughtful prayer life. Again, brethren, if you're like me, corporate or private, sometimes we can ramble. (laughs) Sometimes we have our cliches, right? And sometimes we have patterns, unfortunately, that we follow probably because we get stuck in a rut. And I'm going to give you some. You might not have heard of these before, but I'm just going to say them. You probably know what I'm going to say, or you probably know what they are after I say them, right? 
You probably do it. I do it. And if I make fun of you, it's because I'm making fun of me as well. I just want to say, what I'm about to say, please still pray at prayer time as well. I just want to highlight that. But here's what, here's some of them. The explain my situation mid-prayer prayer. Do you ever have that and see that? It's like for everybody else in the room, we need to know the whole situation that happens. We can't just pray for that person. And then everybody else in the room can just assume that it's someone they know, but you have to tell us mid-prayer what it's all about. You don't do that. I've done that, I'm sure. Or perhaps another one, the preachy prayer. <laughs> you know, I know we pray for other people during our prayers, but, you know, directing it at someone and you're like, wow, like, are you talking to me during that prayer? You couldn't have told me beforehand you were going to lambast me in the middle of that prayer, but hey, that happens. Or perhaps my personal favorite, and I do this probably a lot, and I was very conscious of the prayers I prayed uh, before uh, during the service, but the we just or I just prayer. And Davis, I think, illustrates this well. I always find Davis funny. You might not find him funny, but I find him funny in a good way. He says, we find too little of this that is thoughtful prayer in the church. We don't order our prayers. We simply start in with our religious rattling and easy Christian cliches. We just want to thank you, Lord. We just, we're just really glad to be here. We ask you, Lord, to just give us a really good time in your presence. Just help us to worship you in spirit and in truth tonight, and we'll be careful to give you all the honor and glory. Blah, blah, blah. Then if we need to pad the prayer to boost its earnestness, we can always insert Father or Lord every third or fourth word. Go ahead. Surely God's not too interested in our keeping the third commandment anymore. The third commandment, brethren, isn't just not taking the Lord's name in vain, but it's being reverential in the things we say, and even being reverential in our prayers as well. And we ought to be more thoughtful, dear brethren, in the things that we pray to our God. And now I should say, even though we ought to be thoughtful, prayer is hard, isn't it? Isn't that why the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray? And so when we struggle with prayer, A, if we've committed all those funny things, no, there's forgiveness and mercy in Christ. If we're not thoughtful in our prayers, there's forgiveness and mercy in Christ. But the Bible teaches us how we ought to pray. We ought to pray the Bible. If you don't know what to pray, dear brethren, open up the Lord's Prayer and pray through the Lord's Prayer. If you don't know what to pray, Paul gives his prayers at the beginning of his letters. Open to Colossians 1 or Ephesians 1. Pray that prayer. Or if you don't know what to pray, pray one of the Psalms. Pray Psalm 5, pray Psalm 6, pray Psalm 110, pray Psalm 51. If you don't know how to confess your sins, pray Daniel 9 or Psalm 51. You see, we can pray God's thoughts back to him. Isn't that what prayer ought to be? Our prayers ought to be with open Bibles. Our prayers ought to be biblical. Our prayers ought to be God's thoughts back to him. And if we are then in a rut, it's not wrong to look at how men of old prayed. Valley of Vision, Matthew Henry, and the hope is they become incorporated into our mind and that then we can pray extemporaneously without the need of others as well. And also too, there's this kind of flow when we do our personal reading, isn't there? We read our Bible, we think about it, and then there's prayer. <laughs> Somehow that just happens sometimes, doesn't it? You read something, you meditate on what that means, and you pray to God, praise God, or petition God for something. So if, we, if you struggle with prayer like most Christians do, 
God has given us how we ought to pray. We ought to arrange it before him. We ought to pray his thoughts back to him. We ought to pray biblically, even as the disciples themselves said, Lord, teach us to pray. So let us be thoughtful and let us arrange our prayers. Let's then move secondly also to bring righteous petitions to our God in verses 7 through 12, a righteous prayer. And notice in verses 7 and 8, we see a righteous request for the redeemed. As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Notice his standing before God. He's just talked about what God hates. He's just talked about wickedness. Notice how he stands before God. He's not like the Pharisee in Luke 18. I'm not like everybody else. He's saying, Lord, notice, because of your mercies, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. David's standing is not based on his own righteousness, but based on God's mercy and the mercy that God gives. David even understands that in the Old Testament, that he enters into that house, that he is righteous because of God's mercy and kindness and grace. And he wants to go to the house of the Lord in his plight. He wants to go to the house of God when he's in his difficult and dark place. I will come into your house. As for me, all these ones, all these ones you hate, O God, all these ones you do not look upon. But as for me, I come into your house in the multitude of your mercies. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy hill is because of God's condescension and mercy. It is because God dispels and uh, removes the misery of sin that has come. God does that very thing. And it's because of this, we can approach unto him. And David understands that. You see, the privilege of praying to God is a privilege for the redeemed. We pray to God and God hears us. We boldly approach the throne through Christ the Lord Hebrews chapter 4, that is something peculiar to the people of God. And thankfully, we come and approach him in his house. And thankfully, even if we're away from his house, although we ought to be in his house as we're able, but sometimes sons kick their fathers out. Sometimes you have to run away for your life, and David is going to be away from the tabernacle. And so maybe the situation with Absalom is in view. But he says, I will worship toward your holy temple. He's looking, even though he's away from the temple, he's still going to worship his God. He's going to worship toward that place, the place where God dwells with his people. That is, he's acquainted with the worship of God, and he's acquainted with the God he worships. And he knows what delight his God delights, and he's going to do that very thing, even if he's away for his life. He sets his eyes toward Zion. In fear of you, O God, I will worship toward your holy hill. Worship really is a blessing for the weary, isn't it? Entering into the house of God is meant to encourage us. I know I've said the main thing is to worship God. That is true. I know I said the main thing is to hear from God. That is true. But God also is very good to uplift us as we enter into his house. We come out into out of the world, into this place, weary and heavy laden, feeling a little sick and lightheaded, feeling a little down and depressed, feeling a little discouraged. And what does God do? 
Well, he turns his, our eyes off ourselves and off our situation and onto him and to what he does. And he gives us the comfort that we need. Doesn't take away necessarily the circumstance, but gives us the comfort that we need to endure in that circumstance. And thankfully, whatever circumstance we face, we must always follow the path of righteousness. And so David, even in his trial, he does not make his pain an excuse for sin. That's very easy, even for the Christian with remaining corruption, making pain an excuse for sin. And so he doesn't do that, though. Notice the request he gives in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. The language of righteousness here is lead me in the right way of living. Let me go down that straight path. Lead me in the path that is pleasing to you. Enemies may surround. Tribulations may be overwhelming, but we must always follow the straight and narrow, regardless of the pain that we may suffer. The righteousness, the righteous path is always the right path. For the righteous. It's one we must always take regardless of what pain may come upon God's people. And he's asking for that. Whatever situation I'm in, O oh Lord, lead me in that path. Lead me down that way. And perhaps if you know your Bible well, it sounds similar to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. I forgot the part where he says, lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And the path of righteousness, when it came to sheep being led, could have been life and death either side, right? It was the narrow path they had to take on that cliff. They had to go that way, not that way. Otherwise, they're dead. So we must take the narrow way according to what God has said and walk in his ways as the redeemed in him. So it's a righteous request. Lord, I enter into your house. Here is what I ask. Lead me in this path of righteousness. And then notice in verses 9 and 10, we see a righteous request for justice. And notice we see the sin committed, that speech aspect in verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. It's not always sensational sins, but it shows that the words of a man are enough to condemn. And the words of man show the inward disposition. And if you know your Bibles well, you probably also know that this passage is found in Romans 3. Romans 3 with an amalgamation and a connection with a bunch of other passages to show the universal wickedness of mankind. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Jews are sinful. Gentiles are sinful. Sin does not discriminate. Sin is worthy. Any sin is worthy of everlasting punishment. All have fallen sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But thankfully, there are the but nows in the Bible. Because in Romans 3, there's the but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed. Even the righteousness of faith through Jesus Christ. And that's what he goes on to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely in his sight. 
That's the blessing of justification, isn't it, brother? It's a legal declaration. It's a legal term. That is, God takes away our guilt. One way we explain it to our little one is not guilty. That's what justification means. If you stand on that judgment day not in Christ, you will be declared guilty. If you stand on that judgment day in Christ, you'll be declared not guilty. And so thankfully, justification is that blessing, that act of God's free grace where he pardons our sin and gives us a righteousness that is not our own because of what the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done. That's what the gospel is, isn't it? Christ bore our sin upon himself. He was punished in our stead. On that cross, the end time judgment comes forward, comes forward in him as it's poured out upon him so that we who are in him might not have that wrath poured out upon us forever and ever. That's the blessings of the gospel. And if one believes on Christ, they have everlasting life. And as they go to that judgment, they do not need to fear because they are not guilty because of what Christ has done. God, who is righteous, must punish sin. He either punishes it in the sins of the person or punishes it in another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so after he says all this, after he highlights what their problem is, he also then prays another one of those imprecations. This really is a snowflake melting psalm, isn't it? I mean, we got God basically telling us and everybody that he hates sin, not or hates the sinner, not just sin, but also another imprecation. This is again hard for, for even Christians. Again, I'm not saying to be vindictive. I'm not saying to pray, you know, a, a vindictive calling judgment prayer upon someone who looks at you funny in the grocery store. That's not what I'm saying. The point is you can call for God's righteous judgment to happen. That's legitimate. And in fact, there are other New Testament texts. I think I pointed a few of them out when we looked at Psalm 3, but certainly uh, uh, Luke 18 in the context of prayer, the parable of the persistent widow that we ought to pray and not lose heart. What does he say in verses seven and eight? And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. This is in the context of one who cries out day and night, though he bears long with them. We want God's justice. Yes, we want our persecutors to be saved. Sure, we should pray that first. But then if not, God bring righteous judgment upon them. That is a perfectly Christian <laughs> prayer to pray because Paul does it as we saw last time in 2 Timothy 4. Alexander the coppersmith, may you God repay him according to his works. But also as well, we're going to see this most assuredly, maybe not in this life, but we will see it at the judgment day. And this is in 2 Thessalonians 6, 1, 6, and 7. And again, we probably don't like 2 Thessalonians, but I think 2 Thessalonians, we see the resurrection, we see the judgment and the new heavens and new earth all at once. But notice what he says in verse 6, since it is a righteous thing, with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you 
and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. That is something that assure Paul used that to assure the Thessalonians in their trial that God is coming. Christ is coming and he's going to bring judgment upon his on the persecutors of his people. And two, if God hates oppression, and if he sees the affliction of his people, doesn't that then help us as we pray for those who suffer? And when you think about the order of things before the new heavens and new earth, judgment must happen. (laughs) Before all things are perfect, those who are wicked must be cast out. That has to happen first in the order of things, right? And certainly that was also true in the Old Testament, as we see many types of that great day, as we see the the day of the Lord that came upon old covenant Israel, upon the northern kingdom, upon the southern kingdom, before there could be any sort of restoration, there had to be a dealing with of the people. And so God does show the multitude of his mercy to many. We see the multitude of his mercy in verse 7, but he also shall cast out according to the multitude of transgressions. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. Why? For they rebelled against you. That is their sin. That is why they shall be cast out forever, because they rebelled against God most high. It is their fault. But thankfully, God does save undeserving sinners. If one does not flee to Christ and find forgiveness, this is what will happen. But thankfully, while there's still breath, there's still hope. One flees to Christ. There is mercy and forgiveness. So that's a righteous request for judgment, for justice. Let's then, in verse 11 and 12, we see a righteous request for joy. But let all those who rejoice put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. In the face of trial and sorrow, and difficulty, isn't there a God we can lean upon? Even when we have sighs and cries, isn't there a God we can find joy in? doesn't always take away the cries and the sighs forever, but or take away the circumstance, but he gives us relief in those times, doesn't he? And he reminds us of where our hope lies. Let all That's a kind prayer to pray. Let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you. What's interesting, that's also what David said in Psalm 4 as well. As he talked to the angry, put your trust in the Lord. And thankfully, all those who put their trust in the Lord, verse 11, they shall rejoice. Let them shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Those who are in Christ will be blessed with a great 
blessing. I'm not talking about health, wealth, prosperity, nonsense. But Jesus does say in John 10, he saved his sheep that they might have what? Have life and have it abundantly. But that abundant life is not in the riches of this world, but it's in knowing the king who lives forever and we shall live forever with him. And thankfully, even still in this world, even after we have spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, God still gives good temporal things to his people as well. But more importantly than those temporal things are those eternal things. God is our shield. And notice what that blessing is, protection. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Van Gemeren says, the reality of life on earth frustrates the full joy of the godly. Fears swell up in our hearts as we contemplate the harshness of life. This psalm is full of encouragement to those who suffer adversity. And the reason this psalm is full of encouragement, because we can know the God who we pray to. And that's the final application, the importance of knowing the God that we pray to. The character of God is what gives us boldness and assurance when we pray. Isn't that where David's hope lies? You're the God of righteousness. You're the God who listens. You're the God who hears. Now hear me in my cry, oh my Lord. That's why theology is important. Some people like to think that theology and all that knowledge never helps. My rebut to that is it never helps if you don't know the God you pray to. If you don't know the God you pray to, what help will you have? If your God is emotional, like we are, if your God is in process and growing like we are, if your God is changeable like we are, what anchor is that in shifting times? What strength is that in times of difficulty? Isn't it a comfort to know that the God who is love is the God who loves us and his love is infinite and perfect? Isn't that a blessed thing to know that God is creator? We are the creature that God is being itself and we are the ones he has created and we can put our hope in him or as David highlights his righteousness, perfect righteousness. If God isn't righteous and just, how then will he deal with the wicked? See, that's why theology is so very practical, isn't it? You see, David leaned on theology in his time of sorrow. And it's especially practical when we need help from our God and need protection. It's especially important when we need help as our path unfolds, but we don't see it yet. That we can pray to the God who knows all things from beginning to end, and he gives us the protection we need. Isn't that the sixth Petition. Davis says, sometimes we may, we may not be fully aware of all the details, not know all the particular dangers or various pitfalls, nor even the precautions required. Sometimes it looks like there are no roads in what's ahead of us, but we can pray. Verse eight, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. And the reason we can pray that is because we have a sovereign God, a near God, a sin-hating God, a gracious God, a guiding God, a just God, a good God, and a protecting God. Brethren, this is the God we can call upon in our times of sorrow. He is our King, and He is our God. Let us pray.
our King and our God, we are thankful that we can give uh, give our cries to you, O God, that you give ear to our words and you consider our meditations, that we can give that you give heed to the voice of our cries, O our God and our King. Thank you that we can arrange our prayers before you, O God, and you hear them. Thank you, O God, that you're the one who is righteous in every way. You're the one who hates sin and hates wickedness, O God. And we're thankful, O God, that you shall righteously punish sinners forever. We're also thankful, O God, that you punished sin in the one who was sinless, that all those who have believed upon him, all those who are written in the, the, the Lamb's Book of Life, All those whom you redeem and save, O God, we know that we can enter into your house. We know that we are justified. We know that we are not guilty because of what you have done. And so thank you, O God, for the blessing it is to worship, the blessing it is to enter into this house, the blessing it is to pray to you. For we confess, O God, we have so many sins we still struggle with. We have so many things that grieve us in this world. Yet we're thankful, O God, we can lift them up to you, and you hear us, and you are near to us, and you help us. Thank you for your righteous character, O God. Thank you for your gracious character, O God. And thank you that you lead your people in the path of righteousness. Lead us, we pray, in that path. We also pray, O God, uh, that you would righteously and justly punish those who oppress your people, those who persecute your people. We pray for their salvation, O God. But we pray that you would pronounce them guilty. We pray you let them fall by their own counsels. We pray that you would cast out them out in the multitude of their transgressions because they've rebelled against you. And thank you, O God, that one day shall come when Christ shall come with the flaming fire from heaven, with vengeance from heaven, and he shall usher in, uh, he shall uh, raise from the dead, he shall judge the living and the dead, he shall usher in the new heavens and the new earth. We long for that time, O God. We're also thankful, O God, that we, your people, can rejoice. And we pray, O God, that we would rejoice. We pray, O God, that we would trust in you, even in our times of groaning and sorrow, that we would find our hope and joy in the God of heaven and earth. Thank you that you will bless the righteous. Thank you that there, uh, you favor uh, those who are yours, and you shall surround your people with a shield. And may we confess with David that you, O Lord, are a shield. You are our glory, and you're the one who lifts up our head in times of despair. So we pray tonight, O God, uh, that we would be uplifted, that we would set our eyes upon you, that we would learn how to pray all the more. Please forgive us for that. And please help us to set our eyes upon Christ as we go into this world. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.